Do you want to unleash the remarkable in your team? Hello, I'm Brent Siddle and welcome to the God Story podcast. And our very special guest on the show this time is Leonce Crump, former NFL athlete, international speaker and senior pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta, Georgia in the States. Leonce is one of the authors with Ryan Hardwig and Warren Bird of a new InterVarsity Press IVP book called The Resilience Factor, a step-by-step guide to catalyze an unbreakable team. And it's a it's a fantastic read. I've loved it. And Lance, uh, sorry, Lance, this isn't a, a video um, podcast because you're wearing an awesome hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never know. So I wanted to make sure I looked the part when I got it. Oh, it looks fabulous. I too have a hat like that, but I can't find it in time for this uh, for this interview. Now, why do we need the resilience factor and what actually is resilience? Yeah, so as we came together and examined kind of the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, churches closing, businesses closing, uh, a rapid decline in so many different sectors, the common denominator that we found for those that are surviving and even to some degree thriving uh, at this juncture is resilience, the the ability and the flexibility to endure and navigate hardship and difficulty uh, and even adapt. And that's one thing that that we haven't heard a lot in the definition of resilience. Most people just think it's toughing it out or, or getting through it. Uh, or the famous Mike Tyson quote, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And then, you know, then what do you do after that? And, and all of those he things would are true. He would yeah, know. Yeah, he would know. <laughs> but he delivered more than he ever took. Yeah, for sure. Um, but all of those things being true, the, the one piece that, that we really wanted to draw out is uh, it's not just a, a toughness or a hardness, because that's brittle. Uh, it, it's actually a tensileness, a flexibility, uh, and in some senses, the capacity to adapt to a new reality uh, while keeping your mission central. Yes, and, and really, you go on to explore this in the book, don't you? Um, church teams, we've all been part of church teams, well, I have, and um, I'm wondering, a lot of church teams out there are feeling exhausted. Uh, we've had a great resignation in churches here in New Zealand, and I know, I know you have in the States of pastors who are just have just exhausted and burnt out and had enough. How on earth do we go about rebuilding our church teams in the wake of COVID and the pandemic era or even a post-pandemic era? Yeah, uh, I believe we start with really defining the boundaries of why we exist. You know, one of the things we discovered through the pandemic, unfortunately, is that we were very overly staffed uh, because um, with us only being able to, to do the essential functions without gathering and then even beginning to gather again, we realized very quickly that we had thrown staff and money at a lot of things that could have been leveraged by developing the body of Christ. And so the first thing I would say in rebuilding your your team is to take a step back and assess the reality that you found yourself in. Uh, what are the the actual necessities for continuing the mission forward? What are pieces that you can develop in, you know, what churchmen would call lay leaders to develop the priesthood of believers, kind of an Ephesians 4 paradigm of, of equipping and releasing the redemptive dynamic of the congregation. And then from there, decide who needs to be on the team uh, and what type of intentional and strategic development they need. Uh, I can only speak for Renovation Church. We are 
attendance-wise, about 65 to 75% of what we were pre-COVID. But our staff is one quarter what it was pre-COVID. And we are doing more ministry with fewer staff than we were before the pandemic. And so I, I actually see this as a great opportunity if we're willing to face the truth, if we're willing to face reality, uh, and if we're willing to put the mission first and then decide who we need on the team to build around progressing in our mission. Mm. How do our church teams, I wonder, best operate in this new world of work? And when we've got in New Zealand, we had pretty strict lockdowns, and I, I know you had folk working from home in the States as we did here. How do the church teams operate in this new world of work? I think there needs to be more flexibility. Now, I, I lean, just to be very candid, I lean more toward a more traditional office hours type of structure because I really do believe that proximity and presence matter. Uh, and I was telling our team, because they had a hard time coming back, you know, and, and we mm-hmm. had a lot of honest comfort because we were on a pretty strict lockdown, maybe not as strict as you all, but uh, because we're in a major urban area, there was uh, a lengthy period where you couldn't have more than 10 people in a room together. And so we, you know, we we navigated that and everybody was working remotely, you know, drinking wine in the middle of the day <laughs> while, on, while on Zoom call meetings. And I'm like, OK, this is this is going to an unhealthy place. Uh, but one of the initial kind of tensions we had right out of the gate was nobody wanted to come back to the office. And the, and the, you know, the excuse was, well, this is efficient. I've got to get in the car. I've got to drive to the building. I've got to, you know, it's much more efficient for me to just do my work here. And and the way that I visioned my team, and and again, I can only speak for me if this is helpful, uh, then please feel free to leverage it. But the way that I visioned my team was, yes, I understand that it's more efficient to be, I love my study. This is my home study that I'm in right now. I love it. But when I look back over 20 years of ministry, all of our best ideas, all of our greatest initiative, uh, all of our aha epiphanies, they came in hallway conversations, uh, random interactions, passing by one another's doors, popping in to each other's offices to get an opinion on an idea that expanded into something greater. And, And I said, we can't do that if we're alone in our kitchen or at our dining table, in our home study, we lose all of those dynamics. And so what we've done, I kind of met them in the middle. Uh, At first we did uh, two days a week at home and two days a week at the office. Now we're three days a week at home and one day a week at the office. uh, And the rhythm seems to be working pretty well. Mm. Well, you uh, are- Sorry, no, sorry, reverse that, reverse that. Three days a week at the office, one day a week at home. I want to be very clear on that. Yes, not no, the other so, way around. That sounds great to me. Yeah. Now you're a man who, who you've been part of many, many teams and man, high performing teams. I mean, I've got to ask you, what did you personally learn from your years as uh, with the NFL and from your time playing pro football? Because you were with the New Orleans Saints, weren't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that must have uh, been well, that must have been high pressure. What did you it, learn? It was it was high pressure. The first thing I learned is I was expendable. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's that's the first thing I learned is is if if they decide that there's someone who can do it better, uh, then they will very quickly uh, find a way to replace you, which has taught me a lot about uh, understanding my unique gifting and capacity and what I bring to the table and really maximizing 
that for the good of the organization so that I become less expendable. Uh, another thing that I learned in that time was uh, that at the end of the day, skill doesn't win out. Hard work wins out every time. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you are willing to be the hardest worker in the room, uh, more often than not, there's going to be a spot for you. And then from a spiritual standpoint, uh, you know, I, I think the the biggest learning was was decoupling my identity from from that, because especially as a pastor, you've been on church teams uh, and as a church planter, it is very easy for your identity to become so commingled with the work that you do that your every emotion rises and falls with what you consider to be the success or the failure mm. of the organization. But through that time, uh, not only in the NFL, but at Oklahoma University, uh, I believe it really kind of started there. Uh, I had to learn how to decouple who I am as, uh, as a child of God, as a man, as a son, as a husband, as a father, uh, as a friend. I've really worked hard decoupling who I am from what I do, uh, which allows me to be a healthy member of a team. That's really uh, an awesome insight, actually. It's so true, too. Okay, how did you go about building a top-class team? What are some of the things you look for in your staff members, your colleagues, in yourself? Yeah, pain and trial and error. <laughs> 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 uh, but the reason why I had to do it that way is so that we can produce this great resource that I hope will save your listeners some of that pain and some of that trial and some of that uh, error. Uh, the first thing that I honestly look for uh, is self-awareness. If, if someone doesn't know who they are and how they present, right? Uh, in fact, I remember years ago, one of my mentors shared with me that there are six factors of intimidation, uh, height, size, attractiveness, intelligence, power, and money. And he said, Leonce, you have five of those. And most people assume that you're wealthy because you played in the NFL. And so before you even open your mouth, when you walk into a room, there's already an intimidation factor. And it was one of the most helpful things he ever gave me because I would have counted myself self-aware as far as knowing myself, but I was not self-aware as far as how my presentation impacted other people. And so I, I, I think that is probably the first and most important quality that I look for in a leader. Are they self-aware? Followed by, are they self-motivated? And are they self-starting? You know, I don't, I don't want to have to give you an attaboy to, to get your best work because then we can never actually progress. Uh, and, and if every idea has to be my idea, then we're not a team. You're a focus group, you know, and I come in and I, and I share the big idea and you guys say yes or no, or maybe, well, that's not a team. That, that, that's a focus group. That's a work group. It's not a team. So there's got to be some self-starting from the team. You've got to generate ideas. You've got to generate passion. You've got to generate uh, some of the directional impetus that we have. Uh, and then recently, and, and cut me off at any time uh, from talking too much, but no, carry uh, on. recently I, I was listening to uh, Dr. Henry Cloud do an interview, and he brought up something that I think I've done okay intuitively over the years, but he really concretized it. He said um, that everybody looks toward character and chemistry and competency, but nobody talks about makeup, the personality 
makeup of that person and how a context may draw out the best or the worst of that individual. And, and I found that highly enlightening and something that I would add to kind of my, my tool bag in team building is what is their makeup? Like they may be a Fortune 500 CEO for business, uh, but when you add in the spiritual dynamic of a church, no matter how large it is, it may draw on a part of their person that doesn't come out in those other environments. And that's something that you got to be aware of and look for. And when you start to put all those pieces together, uh, I think you have a great shot at building uh, a resilient, high-performing team. Okay. Well, so many questions I want to ask you. I mean, I was intrigued. <laughs> I, I, I found this, I, I learned so much by reading this. You write about, you write that it's important to name the pain and commit to radical candor. Now, I love that. And it, I, I'm perhaps not, in, in the teams I've been in, I've perhaps not been used to thinking that way. And it would have helped so much if uh, if we'd been able to name the pain and and commit to radical candor. I think sometimes Kiwis, New Zealanders don't like conflict, so we shy away and try. But this is important. How, how do we do this in a team without destroying the team and hurting one another's feelings? How do we name the pain and be radically candid with one another? Yeah, so I, I'll tell you, um, it's not Kiwis uh, alone. Americans don't like conflict. Um, rather than just outright avoiding it, though, they, they are more subversive or passive aggressive, you know, um, but they still don't like direct conflict. Uh, and so one of the things that we've really worked hard on as a team, starting with your first part, is naming the pain. Uh, what is the tension here that we're feeling? And trying to teach people, I know, I know everybody can't see this, but um, if you can imagine with me for a moment, I've got my iPhone or my iPod uh, case in my hand. Seeing the pain point as externalized from the person. So I'm not personalizing this to you. I'm, I'm not saying this is who you are. I'm saying this is what I'm experiencing. And sitting that at the center of the table and then sitting side by side. And we've actually like acted this out so that it becomes a part of our culture. So now we're going to put the issue, the pain point, we're going to put that at the center of the table. And then you and I are going to sit side by side and we're going to evaluate the issue together. And, and we're going to dissect it. We're going to turn it. We're going to look at it and examine its parts. We're, you know, so now we are a team dissecting the issue rather than me making you the issue. And, and now we're fighting each other when we didn't get here on accident. I mean, it's the same thing I, I tell young married couples. One of the best things you can do in the middle of a fight with your spouse, and you will have several, you know, I've been married almost 20 years. We've had many, some healthy fights, some not so healthy fights. But one way that we bring ourselves back to center is to remind ourselves, you are not my enemy. I made vows to you. So you're not an enemy. So why would I go to war with you like an enemy? And so in a lesser sense, you're doing the same thing in a team dynamic. You're saying, hey, we chose to be on a team together. We chose to share life. We chose to share a mission. You have not thus far shown yourself to be my enemy. So I don't want my words to come as an attack to you. I want us to examine this object together and then come to a solution, which means that I've got to be totally honest with how I'm experiencing you and how I have experienced you. And you've got to be totally honest back to me, because if you hold anything, that will become toxicity in you. That will eventually become toxicity in our team. Mm. 
Yes, make it about the issue, not the person. Yeah. Um, That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we should have you running media organisations, brother. I wish mean, <laughs> having worked in the media. Talk about working in teams with a lot of egotistical individuals. Anyway. <laughs> I, I can believe it. So it's like playing football, really, I would imagine. Anyway, now you write about embracing discomfort and even about the positive aspects of conflict in a team. Now, why are embracing discomfort and conflict important, do you think? Yeah, um, well, in, in the macro sense, if we don't embrace discomfort, then every disruption will be earth shattering. And that's kind of what we experienced coming through the pandemic is because people have been lulled into a false sense of stability, then any rocking of the boat feels like the whole world is coming undone. But if you navigate the world, and of course, you know, you and I, we have a biblical worldview. And so we understand that the earth is groaning, right? It is, it is subjected to futility, waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. So we have a theology that should help us understand that for the most part, we're going to have joy relative to our proximity to Christ. We're going to have moments of happiness and, and adulation and exuberance and, uh, and peace. We're going to have that. But the reality is we are navigating a broken world. And so that theology informs how I view that. But let's take that out of it. And let's just say reality. You can look at reality and say, okay, this world is actually not geared towards stability. It's geared toward instability. And part of the tension that I'm experiencing as a leader is I am trying to enforce a stability lens on an unstable surface rather than learning how to just walk in the instability, right? Um, that, that's what I mean by embracing discomfort and, and, and really understanding that we were never as comfortable and stable as we thought we were. We were just in between waves. You know, it's, just, it's like being out on the water. The wave comes and then the water calms and, you know, our minds go, okay, it's over, but another wave's coming. Uh, and when you start to see the world that way, it changes. Uh, and, and I think that feeds into this idea of healthy conflict as well, because Again, as the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. Well, sharpening iron is a, it's a rather violent process. And, and if we are not willing to not only view the world itself as almost inherently uncomfortable, but also know that the discomfort of conflict should produce the best parts of us, then we'll never have the best team we can. You're right about, Tom. Um, I've only got a few minutes left. So many, so many more things I'd love to ask you, but... You write about cultivating story-driven camaraderie. Now, this is this was great. What is story-driven camaraderie, and why is it important to listen to each other's stories? Yeah, so story-driven camaraderie is uh, is just as it sounds. It is it is forming a collective identity, a collective bond through the hearing of one another's stories. Uh, it, it really is a deep humanizing. Uh, and it's an opportunity to cultivate empathy for someone uh, and understand why they behave the way they behave, uh, which gives us room to give grace. Uh, but it also gives us specific data points to uh, to help people develop. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I won't get too specific because I would never want to dishonor this brother. But uh, one of my team members, their father was in the home, but he was completely emotionally absent. Right. 
Uh, well, we didn't know that until we heard his story. But once we heard his story, that contextualized all of the times that he would completely retreat. Every time emotions got a little bit heightened, he would retreat because he was totally uncomfortable with any emotionalism because he grew up in an emotionless home. So now that has bonded me to this man to, to say, okay, I understand why you are the way you are, which helps me to see you. Uh, and it also helps me to challenge you to grow and, and, and challenge you to develop. Uh, I think being saturated in one another's stories is one of the most important functions of team building. Because uh, until I know your pain and I know how you have become who you are and how you've arrived at this place and why you respond to certain stimulants one way and, and other stimulants another way, until I know that, we can't be a team because we'll never have true chemistry. Mm -hmm. We can be a work group. We may be, even be able to accomplish some great projects together, but we won't be a team. A, a team requires a shared story. Uh, and that's what we've seen in sport. You know, we can look at the the Patriots. You know, a part of what made them a great team uh, is they had a story together and they intentionally learned each other's stories along the way. And so once you start forming a narrative that we're all walking out together, uh, man, you have unspoken language. You talk with your eyes. You jump to each other's ideas. But all of that is born out of intentional language. One last question. I hate meetings. I have to confess, I struggle. I, str <laughs> I, str I struggle with. I struggle with meetings. I really do. And you have a chapter in your book called "Design Killer Meetings," and this <laughs> caught my eye. I thought I've got to read "Design Killer Meetings." How do you personally? How do you personally design a killer meeting? And what is a killer meeting anyway? So I confess, a year ago I would have said the same thing that I hate meetings. But the reason I hated meetings is because one, every meeting was trying to do too many things. Uh, and two, uh, there never really seemed to be an arrived upon conclusion, <laughs> clear action steps. You know, I don't know if you're an Enneagram guy, uh, but, but I'm, an in, I'm an Enneagram eight. I just want the bullet points. I don't, you know, I feel like, can we just get to the point? Uh, but I realized, and, and uh, I was really helped by Pat Lencioni in this way. Uh, he wrote a great book called Death by Meetings, uh, which <laughs> I, highly, I highly recommend to you. <laughs> and, Death uh, by Meetings. Death yeah, that's by a great meetings. title. That's a great oh, title. Oh, it's Man. so good. And, uh, <laughs> and it was so helpful in uh, helping me to organize and categorize the types of meetings we should be having uh, and we actually have more meetings now than less, but all of the meetings have a specific purpose, which actually draw in my attention and make me want to be there. But I'm just talking ad nauseum and, and you know, giving reports and like, I, I can get that in an email. Right. So one so one way you design a killer meeting is to make sure you need to have a meeting, you know, and, and I tell a story in there. I tell a story in the uh, in the book about um, our kids director, and he, he gave me permission to share this, uh, where he was trying to make a decision on how to execute on something. And he said, can we get a meeting? And I said, well, do we need a meeting? <laughs> he said, well, now that you, you say that, no, I just need you to tell me if this sounds good or not. You know, so part of designing killer meetings is actually making sure you need a meeting mm, uh, awesome. when it could be a memo or an email <laughs> or a phone call or a text message. And I think in, in the early years of my leadership, 
part of my despising meetings uh, was because I had a lot of meetings that could have been text messages, not emails. They could have just been text messages. And uh, and that's on me at the end of the day, right, for, for not creating the culture around me that I wanted. And so uh, these last several years, it's been a lot more intentional and focused. So we have we have a daily check in. It's five minutes on Slack. What do you got today? Do you need any help from anybody else? We have a weekly tactical meeting. It's 45 minutes and it's all metrics. You know, what was the weekend? Where is giving? How are groups doing? Uh, you know, do we have space for all our kids? It's all tactical stuff. Uh, then once a month, we have a strategic meeting. Uh, and that's for a couple of hours where we tackle two big ideas, two, you know, that that we think are going to move the church forward. Uh, and then once a quarter, we do an offsite for development. And, uh, and that has given us a really great rhythm. It sounds great. I like the five-minute one. Suits me just fine. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It's and it's, perfect. Sometimes it's all you need. You know, you just want a yeah. five-minute. Lance Crump, there we are, former NFL athlete, international speaker, and senior pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta, Georgia. The book with Ryan Hudwig and Warren Bird from Intervarsity Press, our friends at IVP America. Yay. It's called The Resilience Factor, a step-by-step guide to catalyze an unbreakable team. You will learn much. I did. I, 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 I might even learn to like meetings, Lawrence, after reading your book. How about that? I think I, think I can win <laughs> you over. <laughs> I, I think you have already. Thank you, brother. And thanks to our creative team, talking about our team, our creative team, uh, who are awesome at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you, Leonce. Thank you for having me, brother. It really was a joy. Pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.